Go ahead on, get it over with it. 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 Go ahead on, get it
Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode 38 of the ZappaCast for June of 2018. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite people in the world, Mr. Ed Kamara, the co-author with me of a book called Zaftig, the Zappa Family Trust Issues Guide, which is an examination of the various CD releases and digital releases of Frank's music. And that book is available from Amazon.com, www.spbpublishing.webs.com, and other right-thinking booksellers. Later in the year, there will be some more surprises and more fun for you guys as we approach the launching of the Hologram Tour. That's going to be pretty big. For now, we're going to be talking Frank and the Blues, examining the relationship between Frank and the Blues examining the various blues forms that Frank employed over the years, attempting to understand where Frank drew influence and inspiration from the blues. It's blues time, folks, and it's all right here for you right now on the ZappaCast. And now for the main event in this episode of the ZappaCast, the official Zappa podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We have here the internationally renowned author of the international bestseller, Zaftig, the Zappa Family Trust Issues Guide, none other than your friend and mine, Mr. Ed Kamara. Welcome to the show, Ed. <laughs> Thank you again, Scott. Good, glad to be back here. Was that cheesy enough of an intro? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> return of the son of Zaftig. Yeah, return to the son of Zaftig. It's coming, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a very popular book. We're all very happy about that. And I know my name is on the book, folks. I didn't actually have a huge amount to do with it. A lot of that is Ed. So if you liked Zaftig, it's Ed's work. So just to just to make that clear. <laughs> Any changes between the book and the movie version are entirely due to George Lucas. Blame him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, when in doubt, just blame it all on George Lucas. Especially if it's uh, recalled uh, The Last Zaftig or something like the that. The Last Zaftig, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here talking about Frank and the Blues, folks. And um... Yeah, I should say that yeah, my... Uh, the main thing I'm known for in uh, the music world is uh, my blues uh, research. Uh, mm-hmm. For eight years, I worked at the University of Mississippi, miss- uh, directing its blues archive. And then uh, I'm now in snowy Potsdam, New York, near the <laughs> Canadian border. But mm-hmm. uh, I carried over my blues work, including a two-volume encyclopedia of the blues for Routledge Press and various other projects, reviews, books, and uh, stuff. So I'm known more for my blues work uh, than for my Zappa work. Uh, although, yeah, this uh, podcast probably will bring the two uh, even to each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think so. <laughs> You've been on the show before. You're, you're a returning champion. So that's, that's it. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, yeah, this one, uh, this, yeah, the, the whole idea of this project was uh, we were curious. Uh, Scott and I got talking about, well, how many blues – did Frank uh, come up with? And uh, so with Scott's encouragement, I went through all the Zappa recordings, you know, and uh, yeah, I just had to go through every last one. It was so much work. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> How difficult that I, must have been. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
<laughs> but I just kept it to the canonical stuff. I didn't bother uh, going through bootlegs and all that. We just kept it really to the albums that Frank released and that the Zampa Family Trust has reissued and, and released as well. So altogether, we came up with, what, about 57 songs uh, that, you know, among them have about 16 types of blues forms. So uh-huh. uh, once we kind of, with numbers like that, we figure, yeah, uh, play at least one song of each type. Uh, you could have a pretty full podcast and you would have a... Uh, kind of a research uh, resource uh, to go by, although uh, while we may not make a movie of this, we'll probably come out with a book version of this. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So those of you who uh, are wanting to uh, rifle this for a term paper at your local university, you better, uh, you know, one, either check with Scott for rights, which he'll probably deny, or two, <laughs> uh, give us some credit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's fair enough, you know. It's Zappa, so everything everything is credit. <laughs> yep. And probably we're just going to end up what, playing 16 songs, maybe 17 or 18, which means uh, the plagiarist out there still has to listen for the other 39 songs. So one would have to listen through the rest of Frank's music. My heart goes out to them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's the one thing about listeners of this podcast will almost invariably have a uh, largely encyclopedic knowledge of Frank's music, but I don't know how many of you out there will actually know in advance what songs that we are going to play and how many examples of the blues form that Frank put into practice in his work. So I would think, uh, I think the successful listener who does pull off a list, um, uh, would be uh, the same kind of person who has uh, 100% correct on their uh, NCAA basketball bracket of March. <laughs> you know, that, that would be that kind of listener. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Because I don't know for sure that I could name. Well, did you say 18? There's 16 types 16. that I figure, you know, that I determined. Yeah. I was thinking about this this morning, actually, because, you know, you've got, yeah, I mean, there's lots of variations. It's it's interesting that and we're going to get into this uh, a little later in the show, but we were discussing, you and I were discussing whether or not Frank could be considered a blues guitar player, for example. Like, that's sort of one. I always think of him as being. Uh, essentially a blues guitar player, but you've sort of corrected me in that, and I found that very interesting. Yeah. Well, I I think of him related to the blues in the same way that, you know, Duke Ellington was related to the blues. Mm-hmm. Duke Ellington was not a blues man. You know, we, we think true. of him more in the world of jazz, but even in uh, the world of jazz, you know, Duke Ellington wasn't so much who played the blues as played with the blues. Uh, he takes a lot more liberties in terms of scales and form than mm-hmm. any other jazz musician, or for that matter, blues musician, would take. And I think the same is true with Frank, how he played with the blues. Uh, you know, he takes a lot more liberties with it and toys around with forms and scales than, say, your typical, uh, you know, blues rock uh, person, like, say, Eric Clapton or Alvin Lee or someone like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's... One, as one listens through the music, they're going to be hearing a lot of uh, different variants and touch-ups and everything, uh, departures from the blues form. And especially as we get towards the end of our list, 
the last five or six songs, they start getting pretty out there. Uh, and you go, mm-hmm. this is blues. And strictly speaking, probably not. But uh, it it is like one or two, even three or four steps away from the blues. And the traces of the form are still there, if barely. You know, uh, so uh, and it's a sort of thing that probably with some of the last songs that we'll listen to, I probably would not have included had I not been listening through the rest of Frank's music, uh, and especially because I went through them in chronological order. So I realized, oh, okay, this is a step away from that, a step away from that, two steps away. And uh, so that's why with some of the more abstract examples uh, that we'll hear, that's how I came to determine them and why we include them here in this uh, podcast. Sure. And I was I was actually thinking, as I was saying, I was thinking about this this morning. There's actually relatively few examples of, say, for example, um, one, four, five standard one, four, five, like kind of rock, so-called rock mm-hmm. blues in Frank's work. Relatively few, I think. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, even fewer, you know, to take examples of other sort of white blues bands that were coming up in the 60s, like Canned Heat, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. Relatively few examples of Boogie in Frank's work and things like that. And I just, you know, I had had kind of thought for years that there was a lot more of this stuff, but there really isn't. You know, there's a lot of twisted variations. I think one thing that helps a lot, and I think we'll realize this when we hear some of either Frank's covers of the doo-wop tunes that he grew up with or listening to the originals, uh, that when you listen to the the rhythm and blues records that uh, either he covered or he mentions in his interviews, Uh they're playing uh, with the blues form um, all the way around, especially when you take songs like Stranded in the Jungle or, uh, you know, that's uh, one that really plays with the blues form. It's still the blues, but there's just enough additions and adjustments that you go, oh, yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, you have to kind of say that. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways, um, by copying uh, the uh, 1950s uh, doo-wop and rhythm and blues records that he loved, that Frank was encouraged to play around with uh, blues forms and scales like uh, these R&B groups did uh, when he was growing up. And I think that you know the fact that he grew up on the West Coast says a lot about it. If he grew up in the South or on the East Coast or in Chicago, his attitude uh, to the blues would have been much different than, than what it turned out to be. Yeah, and that's that's actually a good point, because if we're to go back, now the first instance that we, we know of, of Frank hearing rhythm and blues, was the famous, I, I think it was a car ride, somewhere around 1954, where he first heard G on the radio. If I'm right, not by mistaken, the crows. by the crows, and I believe his father turned the station very quickly after hearing maybe yeah. about a minute of this. But Frank was enthralled by what he heard, and that sort of started him on that road. It's telling that you know he hears it on a you know uh, off a radio station on the West Coast, and of course I'm thinking of two other artists who made some use of G by the Crows. One, of course, is Brian Wilson, who uh-huh. embeds that, uh, the opening phrase in Heroes and Villains. Yep. And then you also hear it very briefly on 
the soundtrack to uh, American Graffiti, directed by George Lucas. You know, yes. We're going to bring George Lucas back into this. So, <laughs> you know, this is very much a kind of a West Coast uh, sort of favorite, you know, which, uh, sure, it might have had some national distribution, but it was one, but it was a record that uh, has a special uh, significance and uh, and memory for uh, people uh Growing, you know, teenagers growing up on the West Coast. Yeah, and it's interesting because Frank was not alone. Certainly in his in his area. I mean, in very short order, he was able to start making connections with kids in school who had heard this music and aspired to sing it or or play it. And right. uh, what were the options? I mean, they they had um, R and B stations in the greater Los Angeles area at the time, or were you talking like border radio or something like that? Um, that's a good question. I would say it's probably a little of both. Although you did have you know some uh, stations that played rhythm and blues, and I'm trying to remember the now the name of the disc jockey whose catchphrase was burn baby burn let me look it up while we're talking <laughs> yeah because uh, uh you know he was a of course it would be uh that was a catchphrase that became notorious uh during the watts riot in 1965 uh-huh. but the uh yeah the uh disc jockey was an african-american uh disc jockey known as the magnificent that's montague that's it yep yeah. I just I just found it. Um, yep. So that was his catchphrase was "Burn, baby, burn!" Magnificent Montague. Yeah. So yeah, you do have some radio uh, stations playing uh, this music at least in the 1960s, if not as far back as the uh, you know mid to late 1950s. But you're right, this was music that to white listeners was hardly if uh, ever heard. And again, if they did come upon it, they changed the uh, radio station very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was this was definitely threatening music to uh, yeah. a whole generation of parents, at the very least. But it, it seems interesting because relatively quickly, I mean, obviously Frank was discovering other forms of music around the same time. He discovered Edgar Varese, and that introduced yep. him to um, a sort of modern classical world and uh, contemporary composing. But the kids that he went to school with were, a lot of them were very versed in this R&B and also grittier forms of the blues music. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're talking your Slim Harpo or your uh, Guitar Slim or, you know... I was going to say Lil Folsom would have been another uh, West Coast favorite. Colin Uh, Wolf? Yeah, yeah, Colin Wolf in part because... Chess had national distribution, so yeah, some Holland Wolf records made it out there. Yeah, I was going to say uh, specialty uh, records with artists like uh, Little Richard, you know, uh, would have made it out there. So uh, yeah, you would have these patterns of record distribution that that parallel um, migration of uh, blacks, you know, and uh, other labor uh, peoples uh, to the West Coast. Yeah, and so these kids would basically. Right, they would just even even if they didn't really know what it was, they would just buy any record or steal any record that they could get their hands steal any on. Record, yeah. <laughs> now, one type of music that we really don't hear too much uh, from Frank, except as a parody, is country music, and especially the oh. so-called Bakersfield sound that you know was developed also on the West Coast by um, sons of uh, 
Oklahoma refugees, and I'm thinking especially of like Buck Owens and sure. people like that, that was being developed uh, and performed for white audiences in the late 50s, early 60s. But that doesn't really come upon uh, Frank's radar, musical radar, so to speak. Uh, and it's we should acknowledge that that's a style of music that developed in parallel that would become very popular in the 1960s. And we kind of take that for granted, if not forget it today. But uh, that was something else going on. But with what Frank and Don Van Vlay and um, their friends, uh, especially those who were in the blackouts with Frank, they're paying attention to a whole other kind of music than even musically interested white people were listening to. That's yes, that's a very good point. And how here's the question if if that sort of if the Bakersfield sound was sort of yeah. um, more commercially popular or commercially successful, how far underground were things like I'm a King Bee? Or, you know, records like that. I mean, because they probably, they would have gotten out to the West Coast in very limited quantities. Am I correct in thinking that way? You would be correct. I I agree with you on that, yeah. Yeah, I think they were regional hits, really. Or let's put it this way, the Bakersfield sound, you know, led by Buck Owens, they had it easier because for various reasons, not the least of which was their race being white. Uh They could reach white uh, American buyers directly without having to be discovered in England first. You know, yes. That was, uh, whereas, um, you know, with African-American artists, primarily they were being sold to African-American audiences in the South, in the northern cities, in the West. But as far as being um, making their way into white record shops, they just simply weren't going to be there. I would think even uh, in the mid to late 1960s, trying to find a chess LP in a white record shop was going to be pretty hard. You'd have to know the right record store to go to in a big city to find you know, albums or even singles on the labels like uh, Chess or King Records, which was hugely popular at the time. Uh, specialty, you would have to know the right store to go to. Another thing that's worth um, pointing out, too, another avenue for Frank to have heard this music was in jukeboxes. And uh, things like Three Hours Past Midnight, of course, uh, he Mm -hmm. first heard, I believe, on a jukebox. Things like that. And so it's interesting to think that um, that music could have wound up in jukebox, because you would think that it would have had to have some sort of hit potential to be in the jukebox in the first place. You know, if yep. I'm not mistaken. So they were sort of taking, you know, jukebox owners who would have stock those records were sort of taking a flyer on it. Or maybe they just had clientele who were really into that kind of music. It seems to me yeah. that it was very underground through the 50s, you know. I think that's probably well, a fair I way to put say it. as much an underground as African-American blues would be adaptations of doo-wop and other uh, popular song forms by by and for Mexican or Hispanic artists. Ah, uh, that's a good point. When you realize how well versed, you know the early, you know the members of the original Mothers of Invention, how well versed they were in doo wop uh, and uh, the songs that they performed and covered. They had their own taste, and it, I think it was shaped in part with what records that you know they had access to in the jukeboxes, in the diners, or uh, other venues that allowed them in. Feel 
and love In a grave caused by jealousy Hate was a pallbearer And on the tombstone was written misery I can do if these blues don't leave me the undertaker will get me too In the 50s, in the mid-50s, roughly about 57, 58, so Frank at this point is a drummer, and uh, he's in bands like the Blackouts, for example, Um, but eventually he does switch over to guitar, and um, the earliest recording that we have of him performing a blues is um, a tune with uh, Don Van Vliet on vocals. Uh, right. Called Lost in a Whirlpool. Yeah. <laughs> now this is <laughs> example one, correct? <laughs> yeah, this would be the earliest example, and it is a very basic example of uh, blues. Uh, you know, I mean, most blues are, if you're going to count them out in beats, would consist of 12 uh, measures, each measure of four beats, so 48 beats altogether. Uh, and uh, the typical blues would have a lyric scheme where uh, you sing one line, you repeat the same lyrics during the second set of four measures, and then you would have, during the last set of four measures, a contrasting line but to the same uh, rhyme. And, uh, yeah, if you listen to Lost in the Whirlpool, uh, it, the uh, first stanza follows that lyric scheme exactly to the 12-measure uh, chord progression. Uh, one thing is that... Um, uh, Don uh, kind of uh, plays around with the lyric scheme, uh, starting with the next uh, lyric chorus. But by that point, you're laughing too hard from the uh, lyrics of you yeah. know, later on in the record, anyways. <laughs> Is this sort of a parody of anything that you can tell? Not that I can tell. No, I think it's just your basic 
you know, bathroom humor by two guys in high school. Yeah, so it's just kids goofing around. That's it, yeah. yeah. Although you have to admit, though, because uh, this would have been made onto uh, a tape machine, so borrowing or getting a uh, tape machine, they, they were not cheap to begin with, and reel-to-reel tape wasn't cheap either. So here they are doing this you know, onto a, a tape reel that would have cost a fair bit of money for a high school student. It's kind of a funny, you know, they could do something a little more serious or – but yeah, they instead they indulge in a little bit of this uh, juvenile humor, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> on something that's you know pretty expensive for them to do. Yeah, and um, you know what I find uh, fascinating is that through all of the upheaval of Frank's early days, like say in Cucamonga, and then later moving to Los Angeles, and you know all that stuff that happened with all of his tape, he managed to hold on to this reel of tape. So yeah. there, there, there was something. I guess significant or must have been something significant to him about it because, you know, a lot of other tapes have been said to have been recorded at that time or are lost. And uh, including uh, another track that they apparently had recorded at the same time as Lost in a Whirlpool, I think it was called The Search for Tom Dooley. And that that is lost. So we do not know. uh, We do not know what that song was. But um, is that. I'm I'm trying to think. Lost in a whirlpool. That's is that a one four five blues? Is it? Yeah, it's your one four five. What we mean by the first lyric phrase is sung to a one or a tonic chord. You know, say in the key of D to a D chord, and then uh, the second lyric phrase, the second set of four measures would be four or the subdominant chord. So in the key of D, that would be uh, the key of uh, G, and then the third phrase is sung to the five or dominant chord. Uh, that would be uh, to to the A chord, and then you return back to the tonic chord, uh, the D chord, to wrap up the uh, 12 measure blues, and then you start that cycle all over again. So yeah, that does follow a one four five tonic subdominant dominant chord structure. Can't get more basic than that. I mean, country music uh, uses that a lot too. Yeah, that's the base. That's true. That's the basis of country music as well. That has its origins in the blues. Correct. Well, I mean, the chord progression, one, four, five, that's just your basic chord progression for all Western music since 1600. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, with the, uh, but as far as adapting it to a 12-measure form, how that got together uh, is still kind of shrouded in mystery. I mean, I've done a little work on this as part of my blues research, and you know, it's hard to pinpoint it to any one song or to any one time period. Uh, near as I have been able to figure that the earliest datable blues as we know it, you know, refer to events uh, that happened in the 1890s. Uh, As far as anything before, um, I was finding in the, uh, in music, in American music, uh, uh, song and dances that, yeah, I'd see where you would bounce between the one and five, the uh, tonic and dominant chords. But then the introduction of a four chord, the subdominant, to start a lyric phrase, then I didn't really, you know, so in my limited research, I only started seeing in songs, um, you know, in the late 1850s, 1860s, um, the Battle Hymn of the Republic or John John Brown's Body is a significant example of a song that uh, one of its lyric phrases begin on that four dominant chord. But as far as uh, to a 12-measure form, I don't really see that starting to appear until after the American Civil War and uh, really becoming 
dateable to about the 1890s. I know the blues always sounds like it's as old as you know humankind itself, but uh, as <laughs> far as what I've been able to find, and anyone is welcome to delve into American music history, you know, on their own to confirm or deny this, but I'm just really seeing blues as we know it really since the 1890s, maybe late 1880s, but 1890s. But uh, a lot of what we know as blues really exploded with the sheet music uh, uh, craze for the blues in the 1910s, especially with W.C. Handy. So uh, that's when uh-huh. all of a sudden, boom, you see a lot of blues songs uh, come about. But this is all long before Frank is even born. Uh, a lot of what we have, the kind of blues that Frank liked and played was blues with a beat, uh, where uh-huh. all of a sudden you have bands with a rhythm section pounding out the big beat while uh, people are singing along to this. And uh, and it's reflected in that in uh, Frank's uh, blues, even with what he's strumming to a guitar, like in Lost in a Whirlpool. Very interested in um, in the beat and in percussion, 
in general yeah. because you know that's sort of what excited him initially about uh, Varez, and uh, this is true because I was thinking Frank was not from what I can determine, obviously influenced by, say, um, one-man Delta Blues artists. Oh, no, I don't think he was. Yeah, I, I don't think he was influenced by Robert Johnson or, you know, Sun House or Charlie Patton. I mean, yeah, he might have had maybe one or two of the early Delta Delta Blues anthologies on little labels like Origin Jazz Library or Yazoo, but... You know, as far as what he was, but those records were simply not even brought back into print. They weren't even accessible during the time that Frank was in high school and, uh, you know, struggling um, as a young musician and composer, you know, before 1960. So I really, if he had any sort of uh, picked up anything from Delta Blues, it was something that was filtered down through by way of uh, rhythm and blues groups in Chicago, you know, recording, especially for chess records. But even then, there isn't that much. It isn't as uh, noticeable as the influence that West Coast groups and uh, quartets were having on him. Yeah, and um, one of the biggest influences on him as a guitar player was, of course, Guitar Slim, who, yep. uh, you know, speaking of some blues with uh, more than a semblance of a beat, in the real Frank Zappa book, he got the sort of little potted Guitar Slim biography wrong, didn't he? <laughs> I, you know, of course, there were, at that time in in the late '80s, um, there wasn't really all that much research yet on, uh, on on a lot of the blues artists of the even of the '50s. Uh, you know, so uh, I, um, you know, I think what you have in the real Frank Zappa book is what Frank, as a fan, would have known. But you know, he wasn't a professional researcher or anything like that. So yeah. I'm not surprised to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and it, he said uh, basically that. Um... Am I right about the guitar slim met his end being stabbed in the head with an ice pick? And <laughs> well, that's how the first Honey Boy Williamson died. Yes, uh, John Lee Williamson died in 1947. So uh, you know, and uh, you know, especially in some some of the really bad, you know, struggling neighborhoods uh, where African Americans lived at that time, that was um, I wouldn't say it was an everyday occurrence, but it happened more often than it you know could have or should have. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, maybe he just, uh, maybe he had heard those two stories and conflated them, possibly. But Yeah. But the interesting thing about the things I used to do, which is the Guitar Slim track, you can really right. hear between that and Three Hours Past Midnight by Johnny Guitar Watson, really the beginnings of Frank's uh, essential guitar signature, which is... Um, it's certainly in the case of Johnny Guitar Watson, you've got these sort of machine gun-like bursts of yep. um, of frenetic soloing, which Frank certainly employed. And it would uh, appeal to a percussionist who's used to just doing these machine gun-style bursts or patterns anyways. Yeah, very, yeah, kind of snare drum kind of assaults, you know, but on yeah. the guitar. Would you say that's the appeal to somebody like Frank, that, they, that the link is the percussive nature of the playing? Yeah, I would say so, because um, on a lot of those uh, you know, rhythm and blues records, you're going to hear a saxophone solo as often as a guitar solo, maybe hear a saxophone solo more often than a guitar solo. So to have an electric guitar solo, you know, and electric guitars were still a novelty in the 50s, 
uh, but to hear it played you know, loud and sometimes with distortion by the likes of uh, Guitar Slim and Johnny Guitar Watson and uh, Gatemouth Brown, uh, whose uh, record Okie Dokie Stomp was a test piece for uh, blues guitars at the time, to hear it mm-hmm. played in that manner uh, that could not be copied or only copied with difficulty by a saxophone player, that that's going to make a young musician like Frank take uh, stand, uh, take notice. So at the time, that would have been what you'd call a new sound, you know, even yeah. for people who very much a new sound, yeah, yeah, and that would so that certainly would have turned some heads. I mean, the kind of solos or even accompaniment that uh, Guitar Slim does uh, for uh, the things I used to do. You couldn't play too well with an acoustic guitar, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, to be able to play that and be heard in a uh, crowded club and even onto the street, you could only really do that with an electric guitar, uh, an amplifier. There was no way you, you were going to do that with be heard with an unamplified acoustic guitar. Yeah, I think um, although the earliest examples we have of Frank as blues player tend to be acoustic based. Um, That's right. Stuff. They, yeah, like Lost in a Whirlpool or, you know, Ronnie Sings, in which he just kind of plays uh, a couple of blues choruses, 12-measure blues choruses to whatever whatever Ronnie's doing. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's just pretty simple acoustic guitar strumming in a living room or someplace like that. Yeah, or in an empty Studio Z. Yeah, I, I have to admit that when I first heard Ronnie Sings, I thought it was Vleet. Uh, Captain Beefheart, because uh, it, their voices are so similar. Do you think uh, Ronnie is trying to do his Howlin' Wolf there? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise you. I never thought of it, but I suppose you might be right. <laughs> yeah, I don't. We don't really know what Ronnie's doing there, but <laughs> no. And sometimes we're better off not knowing what Ronnie's doing there. What key do you want to do it? Try maybe a D flat. Well, do it in C. Do it in C. Kenny were sung about in uh, Let's Make the Water Turn Black. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Ronnie, obviously, uh, for those of you, I'm sure a lot of you out there will know the, the kind of the basic bio for, for the Williams Brothers. But And it's in Frank's, uh, the real Frank Zampa book. Yeah, that's probably the best place to read about it. Um, they were very interesting characters, uh, to say the least, and they were yeah. both musicians. So, you know, they were people with whom Frank could develop his abilities, his basic abilities as a guitar player. Having by that point in the early '60s, I and mean, probably 
right around the time of Lost in a Whirlpool, he more or less abandoned the drums to yeah. to be a guitar player full time and uh, assumed um, a, a, a pretty decent mastery of the instrument fairly quickly. Of course, he, you know, he had a lot of experience playing in sort of lounge jazz combos and things like that that added jazz chops to his yeah. uh, blues approach that he probably would have started with. Well, I mean, an interesting um, recording that reflects that, you know, lounge, uh, you know, either lounge uh, style or uh, or roadhouse style would be that recording of Steal Away that he and Includes on um, the mystery disc, uh-huh. uh, you know where, um, and uh, this would have been a recording that you know it was live recording. Frank had his tape recorder with him in this, and he's playing uh, in some little combo in, and this is 1964. Uh-huh. Now the person singing on it was it a employee of that roadhouse or venue? I don't know enough about it. I, I believe she was a regular, if I'm not mistaken. And maybe okay. somebody somebody out there will uh, write in and yell at me, but <laughs> I believe she was a regular. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't sure it was an employee or a regular. Yeah, and it's just and the and it's not something that's made up on the st- spot. They were covering a uh, popular single. You know, it was, a, it was a popular song. There was like on the research I did for this podcast, there's like 15 or so versions of this song on records uh, as it was. So everyone was covering it on records, and if you have that many different treatment on records just think how often it was being played uh in bars or uh barbecues or roadhouses or in places like that so sure you know frank seems pretty um patient with it i think one thing is it is a different sort of form uh most blues are going to be in 12 measures but then um there are a few blues that frank did that are in eight measures um and of course uh for a lot of blues people the um, pattern uh, for eight measure blues is going to be sitting on top of the world, which uh-huh. Alan Wolf did. Cream did a rock uh, a cover of it, so it's well known to rock fans. What the composer Jimmy Hughes did to write "Steal Away," he just uses the that eight measure blues form as a basis of a he he uh, repeats that eight measure form three times as a basis of a 32 measure song. Um, what we would call A-A-B-A, and then for what would be the third set of eight measures, he kind of puts in a substitute uh, structure. But, yeah, uh, it's just your, um, you know, steal away is just pretty much uh, constructed of eight-measure blocks, most of which are on the blues. So, uh, and this is very much of of that time, uh, of the early 60s, what people were playing in, cheap joints like what where Frank uh, recorded himself that night. Yeah, the, um, Cora was her name. That was the name of the okay. woman singing. We don't really know anything else about her, really. I believe that she was a regular there. I don't believe in the mystery disc he really divulged much of uh, of any. But, you know, again, that it's, it's interesting that he should uh, want to spotlight that piece because Steal Away would have been on the um, unreleased 12 LP set from 1969, yep. so obviously Frank valued the performance. You know, it, it's a really kind of neat little nugget from that time, I guess. Yeah, that it, it really is.
So where does that lie in in terms of you know the, our numbering system for blues forms? <laughs> I'd say it's kind of additive. It, it's part of the group of uh, blues uh, where he's using eight measure forms instead of twelve measures. Another one, and of course the the nature of eight measure blues, they're not so much based on the chord progression as on the melody. Uh-huh. Um, that's a difference between how uh, blues musicians will treat the blues and jazz musicians will treat the blues. Yeah. What jazz musicians would do, they would uh, take a blues song, chuck away the melody, keep the harmonic chord progression, the one, four, five chord progression that we described earlier, mm-hmm. and put a new melody on top of the chords. Whereas uh, in the blues tradition, what you're doing is you're keeping the melody. You may change a lot of things about the song, like the words, some of the ornaments, maybe even uh, in some extreme cases, a few chords here and there, but it's a melody that stays uh, constant. Steal Away is one uh, example of that. Another one is a song that uh, Frank uh, titled uh, Your Mouth. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, that one, for that one, he uses, for some reason, he uses one of the most, maybe one of the most cliched melodies in the blues traditionally known as East St. Louis Blues, but it's best known through a hit version in 1928 by Leroy Carr as How Long, How Long Blues. Uh And uh, rock fans would know it through Robert Johnson's record, Come On In My Kitchen. But however you know that that title, you're going to recognize the melody in in Frank's uh, song, Your Mouth. And um, so, uh, and in fact, uh, let's see, if there's six choruses altogether in your mouth the choruses one two and four uses the east st louis how long how long tune and then um yeah choruses three and six use an alternate eight measure theme that i haven't been able to trace it might be frank's original uh composition and then for the fifth chorus the second to last chorus he sneaks in a 12 measure uh aab style blues like we've heard before so uh so this is one where yeah, uh, Your Mouth, uh, along with Steal Away, is another of those uh, eight-measure forms. I never really put that melody together with those other songs, but yeah, you're absolutely right. That's that's where that's from. And that's yeah. uh, it's what you learn something new every day. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. 
wonder if this might be a good point to bring up hokum blues and how it appears in a couple different songs of frank's yes um hokum was a style of blues that i've traced it uh, the earliest example i found is uh 1929 in a record by tampa red who was a very popular uh-huh. uh, african-american blues man and he did this record called what is it that tastes like gravy yeah but um <laughs> It's yeah. It's also known under other titles as well. I think if I uh, if I don't have the titles confused, I want to say I think it was known in the jazz world as "I wish I could shimmy like my sister Kate." Yes, uh, I believe you're right. Has uh, I think some credit to Louis Armstrong. Uh, so it was something that was in common practice, um, especially in Chicago during the 20s, but all around too. That one is you could either transcribe it as eight measures or 16 measures. I, I prefer thinking of it more in terms of 16 measures, but it's one where um, if we think of it as a 16-measure form, it breaks down into four-measure phrases. And uh, But it is an early style of, of recorded blues. And so for Frank to pick this up, he doesn't do it too often, but he uh, does it in significant records. And one early example would be is what many consider his first masterpiece, uh-huh. Brown Shoes Don't Make It. Uh-huh. And in the what would be the punchline of this whole track, because it veers from one musical style after another, from you know from Webern twelve tone music uh, to popular music, and right at the punchline, you know, if she were my daughter, what would you do, Daddy? Uh-huh. Uh, with that punchline, smother that girl in chocolate syrup and strap her on again he chooses to set that to a 16-measure hokum form, uh, which you've never heard before in, in Freak Out or anything like that. So 
the novelty of you know all of a sudden you have this hokum uh delivering the um uh punchline is makes it totally unexpected which is what a uh, punchline should do yeah so to him would it be fair to say that this hokum setting is comedic for comedy purposes oh, very much yeah yeah well i one of the other as far as i have found in um the official uh releases there's only two other instances where he uses the hokum form one would be the single why don't you do me right and yep. but more significantly is on Joe's Garage, uh, why does it hurt when I pee? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a, that's a significant one, and also by complete chance, uh, when he um, and John Lennon performed together with Yoko Ono at the Fillmore, one of the songs they do as well, which also kind of follows that that song form, but um, but especially in setting why does it hurt when I pee to hokum form is as you say, it's uh, with an intent to deliver a humorous effect. Yeah, even if the effect is not necessarily, you know, it, it can be subliminal in the way that yeah. Frank, um, or m- maybe it's most often subliminal in, in the way that Frank employs it. It's sort of more overt in um, Brown Shoes Don't Make It because of the way that bit was recorded and, you know, it's supposed to sound, I guess, for lack of any better way to put it, old-timey. So that's, that's what it's right. supposed to tell you, you know, it's, that signals that in your brain. So, uh, yeah, I find I found that very interesting. I think, though, um, as we delve into the doo-wop and other covers that he does, we find um, ways in which uh, the original songs and his faithful covers kind of play with the blues form. Uh-huh. And this might be a good time to explore the, uh, the covers he did. Um, one is going to be WPLJ, White Port and Lemon Juice. Yep. Of course, that was originally uh, recorded in 1955 by the Four Deuces, and Frank's version is pretty reverential for this one. You know, you're going to hear the 12-measure blues chorus and the chord progression to it, but instead of doing the um, you know lyric, lyric, repeat, punchline, AAB verse structure, this is one where, and this makes a pretty common uh blues chorus uh, structure, I call it a four plus eight verse and refrain scheme, where you would have uh, in the first phrase of a 12 measure of blues, a distinct verse, and then in the last eight measures, you would have a chorus, you know, white, port, and lemon juice, uh-huh. white, port, and lemon juice, white, port, and lemon juice, oh, what it does to you, and that's going to be a recurring chorus to it. So uh, this was a pretty common way of setting up your lyrics in rhythm and blues records uh, and also in some of the um, early acoustic blues too. But it's one that you hear a lot more in blues of the forties and fifties. Please, please, please give me some more. Oh, I thought 
Then you get some other extreme uh, doo-wop tunes that Frank covered that have even more extreme structures. One is going to be No No Cherry. Uh-huh. That was, that's an obscure one. I had a hard time researching this one. As far as the composers go, I just have last names and first initials, uh, Caesar and Gray. And that was done for a small label called Money uh, in 1955 by the Turbans that according to some doo-wop sites say, yeah, the turbans were later known as the sharp tones. This is one that when you listen to it, it's actually, it, it makes use of the, the blues form, but it's kind of different. The verses, which change with each repetition, are in a 12-measure AAB uh, lyric blues, the, the typical blues. And then the refrain is going to be uh, also in 12 measures, but it breaks up where the first eight measures are going to be verses, and and then the last four measures would be a kind of chorus. So as a whole, you could say it's in 24 measures. So this is where songwriters for rhythm and blues and doo-wop were kind of using these adjustments to the blues form, kind of doubling it or adding on to it to suit different uh, a new kind of song or new kind of lyrics. Well, I found out, baby, it's old, big, great, big life. Well, I found out, baby, it's okay, baby, fly. When I got inside, you didn't have no cherry pie. Well, you had no, no cherry. 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 No, no cherry pie. Well, you had me, baby, 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 lose my pie. No, no, Cherry was, of, of course, a song that was um, played extensively by Frank in the last couple of tours that he did. That's right. I think he did it as part of a set where he would do a whole bunch of oldies. Yeah, Little Girl of Mine was typically part of that. Man from Utopia meets Mary Lou. So Mary Lou being... Yep. Yeah, there was a sort of little um, kind of aside to that. And, of course, there's um, wasn't part of that sequence, but... Um, Cocksucker's Ball was <laughs> was frequently oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, played on that 84 tour. Talk about a twisted blues, but... <laughs> yeah. That was, you know, recorded by a couple of different groups as a, what they call a party record. They they did, you know, they recorded it in the studio and then it was sold in limited pressings, you know, to preferred customers. It mm-hmm. went to the right record shop. 
And, and of course, it, be, it was something that got bootlegged and shared among various people. And obviously, Frank heard that and just went with it. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about obscure. That Would that be an example of the Dirty Blues? <laughs> the, the very much uh, an example of the Dirty Blues. Very okay. much so. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned a Little Girl of Mine, and that one's a different kind of structure. But it's one that it has – it turns out it has the same structure as – an early Frank original, The World's Greatest Sinner, mm-hmm. where it makes use of uh, 12 measure blues. The song, you could say the song as a whole is in 44 measures, and but each verse would be a 12 measure blues. And then he sticks in as a bridge or B section, um, a uh, an eight measure uh, bridge. So um, yeah, Little Girl of Mine follows that. And then yeah, The World's Greatest Sinner, also follows that as well. And Little Girl of Mine was originally uh, recorded by the Cleftones, which had a whole bunch of doo-wop hits on the West Coast. So when you've got that being played on the radio and in the air, so to speak, uh, that's going to give Frank uh, some encouragement to uh, depart from your usual 12-measure blues structures. Frank did a fair amount of that. I mean, do, do you think when he was writing a song like uh, World's Greatest Sinner, uh, yeah. that he was sort of consciously copying any of these forms, or he just kind of, as you say, get it from the air? I think, uh, well, you don't create out of a vacuum. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, and I, especially with Frank, uh, still at the beginning of his career, he's still following his models. So I think he was, uh, you know, and, and I think what, you know, that the fact that he played the original song in uh, concert tours in the 80s, uh, especially in 84, shows that he knew the song and he knew how to adapt it, its basic elements and uh, structures to create a new song out of that. Uh, so I don't think he completely made it up uh, out of the air, so to speak. I think he took something that was a proven hit and uh, and that people knew could dance to or whatever or follow and just go on from there. Yeah, I mean, uh, World's Greatest Center was... What, 1964 or 62? Uh, 60, well, 62 would have been the yeah. uh, original, of course, done for the movie of the same name. That's Although okay. I do not know whether or not that song was part of the original movie or not, because the prints of the movie that we have um, yeah. that occasionally get run by, I think it's... Um, Turner Classic Movies, they have yeah. that song tacked on to the beginning from, mm. you know, what is evidently, you know, a different uh, post the creation of the film. So I do not right. know. There, There is a, um, a similar, a very similar blues, instrumental blues in the World's Greatest Sinner movie that I do yeah. not know. And I guess we have no reason to believe that it was um, recorded by Frank. Or who it okay. would have been recorded by, but it's it's very similar to the world's greatest center. But just as an sure. aside, that that song does not appear in the original um, cut of that movie. Oh, sure, it was a single only. Didn't go anywhere, of course, but it was a single. No. So then- <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is for all the Republicans in the audience. Yeah, 
You can tell, you know, he's he's very um, reverent to some of these, um, you know, these uh, doo-wop songs, especially. He doesn't try to change them. He used to do um, a cover of, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard it, because I don't think it's been released on anything, of uh, Tony Allen's Night Owl. No, I haven't heard that. Yeah, no, he does. Um, in 1980, they were doing a beautiful cover of that. Yeah, it's absolutely worth yeah. your time to hear, but, you know, it's... I always find it very touching to hear Frank do some of these um, doo-wop R&B tunes because, you know, he does have such obvious affection for it. I think as, you know, in the 60s and 70s, maybe even the 80s, a lot of people thought that he was simply making fun of the form by right. performing those songs, but I don't think that's that's nowhere near true. One thing that kind of is, we'll talk about the early years, especially like Cucamonga years, he released a song called Mr. Clean yeah. by Mr. Clean. <laughs> and, and that fits within the uh, blues, especially for, there's it has an eight-measure verse and a 12-measure refrain. So especially the refrain part you know, for the chorus, that uh, fits within the uh, within the blues. So that's a different one. That one you have a guitar solo too. Yes. I would think that would be Frank playing guitar on that. Yes, that is Frank playing guitar on that. Yeah, you know some of these sort of. I w- I was thinking um, guitar heavy blues numbers that he did anyway. Like first, say for example, Magic Fingers. You know these yeah. these things that are sort of um, heavy riff driven things. Yeah, and that one, yeah, Magic Fingers. Uh, I love that song. It's one of my favorite uh, tracks on uh, Two Hundred Motels. Yeah, you know, or too. for that matter, when I watch the movie. Of course, he does two different kinds of twelve measure blues. One is the standard. AAB uh, lyric, but then what he does for the third phrase, he kind of alters the chords a little bit. Yeah, the uh, he does some alterations here and there. But when you get to uh, the guitar solo near the en- at the end, yeah, it is you know especially the solo is one of his uh, most kick-ass blues solos uh, that we have. Yeah, and it's it's uh, interesting because you know although Frank would continue to evolve as a blues player, it's a very sort of 
fiery, emotional solo. That's that's kind of the way I look at it. And that riff is killer. But, you know, he didn't really, you know, as far as what I have found uh, among his uh, recordings, at least what he released uh, himself or the family has released, he doesn't improvise that much on the blues. I mean, he'll do more, uh, you know, uh, on vamps, you know, on, you know, four or eight measure vamps. Uh-huh. But uh, as far as doing a... Uh, you know, twelve measure blues to the one four five chord progression. It doesn't do that too often, and Magic Fingers is uh, one of the few. And I was going to say, even his great guitar solo on um, Well uh, from that Fillmore recording, uh-huh. grant you know, to that sixteen measure uh, chord progression, it's a great solo. But it's or he performed hardly at all. It seemed on 16 measure blues as well when he was soloing i think his favorite space was would i be correct in saying this single chord Mm -hmm. as stretched out and as open as possible so that he could take that anywhere play with the harmonics all that sort of thing and uh i was gonna say speed freak boogie among his early recordings is a great early uh, example of that i mean sure it starts out in a 12-8 boogie line for a couple measures but then the uh, rest, but that's just as an introduction. The rest of it is a one chord vamp. You know, uh, that's you know, as young as Frank is, that's what he's doing to allow himself, you know, the maximum uh, freedom to uh, to improvise. Where would he have gotten that from? Do you know that that whole single know. chord vamp, or is that just you know something that maybe? I'm just theorizing here, maybe due to the technical limitations of the other people he was playing with, or he said, you know, maybe you just stick to one chord and I'll play over it. But is there yeah. a, a an obvious influence? No, right? No, I don't know of an obvious influence, but I think what you suggest that he's working with the limits of his musicians, that makes perfect sense. He did, you know, the single chord thing, he would employ for his entire career and uh he some of his best solos were in that space and i think um but if you if you take things like you know the mothers of inventions arrangement of king kong uh Mm -hmm. on stage that becomes a single chord um e flat vamp with a um with a sort of a driving beat and Mm -hmm. uh but that's very at least the way the mothers played it it's very bluesy to me anyway i don't know you know how you would see that but that that relentless beat and just it just has a that vibe for me i'm not really sure how to explain it otherwise no i think that's as good as you can describe it anyways Squeeze me, girl. Red balloons just pop behind my eyes. 
you know what? Now we can pitch uh, the newly reprinted Frank Zappa guitar book. Hey. Uh, now out from uh, Hal Leonard. Finally, uh-huh. after all these years, it's back out. That you look at, which are uh, guitar solos from the 1970s, uh, a lot of them from the Shut Up and Play Your Guitar series, all uh, transcribed by a teenage Steve Vai. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, you look at them, and it's all based on these, you know, vamps, you know, these one-chord vamps, usually, you know, with a pattern established by the bass guitar, but it's going either, you know, uh, either one-chord or single-mode uh, vamp, you know, just to, uh, and a lot of it would be on songs like Inca Roads or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Single-chord, um, stretch out. You could take it kind of anywhere. Sometimes the solos would lead, you know, would influence what, what the vamp does. Well, there's two other songs in this section that we can talk about and then we head into the final eight on my list sure uh one is going to be of course we talk about uh early influences we have in france yes with johnny guitar watson uh-huh. yep and that's a great example uh, another great example of uh you know four plus eight uh verse and refrain blues in 12 measures uh of course a good pun on uh uh, the British blues rocker Peter Green on that. Yes. <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. Took me years uh, to figure that Chump, out. Yeah, Suicide Chump fo- follows the same kind of structure on that, too. That one's not so well known. But in France, off the uh, Them or Us album, that's the one that is a great example of that. And then I was going to say the other one uh, from uh, Frank's middle period is going to be uh, Penguin in Bondage from uh, huh. you know the the Roxy concerts. Yeah, that's a that's a very twisted form. <laughs> yeah, it is a twelve measure blues, but it's a uh, it's a little different in that the refrain actually occurs during the first uh, four measures instead of the last four measures, and then the hmm. changeable the variable lyrics occur in the last eight measures of each chorus. Is there an obvious influence for that? Not that I know of, no. That's another um, possible Frank invention or uh, yeah. variation on, on the form. But um, Yeah, I always found that interesting because, yes, you're right, the refrain is immediately, it's there. And yep, the penguin and bondage boy, yeah. Da, 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 da. Penguin and bondage boy, yeah. Yeah, and um, I think in the in the solo there, how does the solo structure work out? It works out to be, it's not single chord. It does go. Oh, uh, he does embed some alternate chords, you know, non blues chords into it. So it does kind of sound a little different. You know, the melody kind of sounds more like, you know, born under a bad sign. You know that Albert Collins did. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's just enough alterations, uh, especially with the chord progression, that it doesn't sound like your typical uh, 1960s, uh, you know, um, Chitlin Circuit blues. Uh, you know, Frank would have gotten it from. Yeah, it's actually for me, it's one of the most uh, unique of of Frank's blues parts because it it is deceptively, you know, it it sounds deceptively simple but there's a lot going on in, in a song like that as... oh it is yeah and i would think that uh you know to do that sort of um treatment you know whether with the guitar or in tinkering with the uh uh chord progression he could have only done that after he had done albums like waka jawaka and apostrophe i don't think he could have done this uh in my opinion i i couldn't have seen him doing certainly not during the uh, Mothers of Invention period, or even uh. I could, you know, one could argue, uh, I don't think I, he could have really done it all that smoothly um, 
during the vaudeville era. His blues uh, during the vaudeville era is Road Ladies, but that's a different sort of song than Penguin in Bondage. Pardon me, folks. The name of this song is Penguin in Bondage, and it's a song that uh, deals with the possible variations on a basic theme, which is, well, you understand what the basic theme is. And then the variations include... um, Maneuvers that might be executed with the aid of uh, extraterrestrial gratification and devices which might or might not be supplied in a local department store or perhaps a drugstore, but at the very least in one of those fancy new shops that they advertise in the back pages of the free press. This song suggests to the suggestible listener that the ordinary procedure uh, that I'm circumlocuting at this present time in order to get this text on television is that uh, if you want to do something other than what you thought you were going to do when you fi- first took your clothes off and you just happen to have some devices around, then it's, it's not only okay to get into the paraphernalia of it all, but... What did he say? You ready? <laughs> I have them. I bet you do too, don't you? <laughs> She's just like a penguin in bondage, boy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Way over on the west side of the bed. Like the mighty penguin flapping straight on swing. Lord, you know it's all over. If she come at you on the strut and wrap them all around your head, flapping straight on swings. She's just like a penguin and bondage boy. up the pale dry ginger ale trembling like a penguin when the battery burns you know when the battery fails in the vibrator Lord, you must be having a jumping through a hoop of real fire With some Kleenex wrapped around the coat hang wire Thank you. 
like a penguin in bondage, boy. Howling over to some articulated moon In the frostbite night with the flaps gone white Shrieking as she spot the hoop across the room Right through the hoop without even feeling any pain You know, it must be a penguin bound down. If you hear that terrible screaming, there ain't no other birds around. She's just like a penguin in bondage, boy. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. She's just like a penguin in bondage, boy. Oh, you must be careful not to leave us wraps too loose. Cause she just might box your doll. Cause she just might box your doll. And leave you a cloud of dog biscuits. <clears throat> These last seven songs or so, these are where they get a little way out. You can't really say strictly that they're blues, but certainly that they would be one conscious step away from the blues, or in some cases, two conscious steps away from the blues. So, uh-huh. of course, there's a couple of songs that appear, why be surprised, on Frank's collaboration with Captain Beefheart of uh-huh. the Bongo Fury album. Yep. Uh, and there's two songs on there that would have some relevant uh, songs to the blues. One is uh, 200 Years Old, uh-huh. uh, which has a, kind of that loping, boogie, 12-8 bass beat throughout. And it's kind of funny because if you listen to this after having listened to Penguin and, and Bondage, uh, you think that you know, the opening uh, melody, the opening vocal melody, uh, resembles Penguin and Bondage a little bit. Yeah. But then uh, Frank follows up with a rare, as we, uh, a rare blues guitar solo in 12 measures and then uh the captain sings and scats through two more uh 12 measure choruses although they tend to be more like you know abc uh lyric choruses so yeah. uh yeah um and then what we have closes with a, a duet for guitar and harmonica uh but yeah the last four measures are kind of faded out on that but uh, that's one where you do have a, a blues uh Especially once you get to start with a uh, guitar solo, that's going to be a blues right there. Sure, of course. Well, your harmonica, son. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Where's that from, the, uh, by the way? Do you know? Oh, that would be from uh, Trouble Every Day. Are they making a reference to anything there in Trouble Every Day? Yeah, but, yeah, you know, I can't. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, or any number. If I of... ever knew, I forgot it. I don't know. Yeah, I think it could be any number of. If, if you know out there, listeners. Write in and let us know. I always thought that yeah. was a reference to something, but I've never been able to track it down. If um, I ever spotted it, I promptly forgot it. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> you don't have to know everything. <laughs> <laughs> I can forget something. Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can forget the occasional thing. 
I was sitting in a breakfast room in Allentown, Pennsylvania, six o'clock in the morning. Got up too early. It was a terrible mistake. Sitting there face to face with a 75 cent glass of orange juice, about as big as my finger, and a bowl of horribly foreshortened cornflakes. And I said to myself, This is the life.
the other song though on uh, Bongo Fury, and this one is again a step away, literally, and that is Deborah Cadabra. Yeah, this and, one's from uh, Mars. <laughs> it's in various sections, and it's in the second section or the second episode of the piece, uh, which occurs. It occurs. You hear a turnaround phrase like you would hear in the last two measures of a typical blues. In that second episode, the song goes into a lyric that has like a AAB lyric scheme, but it you know it's the lyrics would be shoes are too tight and pointed, shoes are too tight and pointed, yeah, act, ankles sort of puffing out caused me to shout, and that is your classic blues lyric scheme, but it's not being sung to a blues chord progression. Uh-huh. So there's a kind of a step away. It's like okay, let's sing a blues lyric scheme, but not to a chord blues, uh, not to the uh, harmonica chord progression uh, associated with the blues you know i never really thought about that but that's true that is um yeah a uh, a blues chorus just put to an arrangement that's sort of from another planet <laughs> yeah. especially when uh, captain beefheart is on it yeah it's a long way since uh lost in a world sure is <laughs> yeah but he but he's always going to have that blues vibe to whatever he does with the captain because um you know beefheart's always going to sound like howlin wolf so that yeah. <laughs> Jewelry. 
Emboss me! <laughs> Rub the hot front part of my head with rigid unguents! <laughs> Give me boss relief! Frank really knew the blues uh, stuff, kept up with it certainly in the 60s because uh, one of the more extreme uses of blues that he does occurs in Broadway musical Thingfish uh-huh. the, with a track that he titles White Boy Troubles. And <laughs> and it's uh, the first section of it is, uh, is sung to a 12-measure blues with where the lyric scheme changes each line, so it would be like A-A-B, but yeah, it 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 has lyric quotations from you know Mitch Ryder's "Devil with a Red Dress On," yep. Ray Charles' "What I'd Say," Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs' "Wooly Bully," and even uh, a quotation from the spiritual "Go Down Moses." Uh-huh. Uh, now, once Thingfish uh, enters, then um, the rest of that track is a non-blues. But during that first section, you do have these uh, fleeting references to uh, 12-measure blues of of the 60s. Is he parodying white person attempts at the blues there? You could argue with that, especially since Mitch Ryder and Sam the Sham uh, were were white. They certainly not were not African American. So that's a good point to to make. And that if you recognize those as uh, sources, there could be some humor to be found in that. On the other hand, uh, Ray Charles, of course, that's from I think what I'd say is from 1959. That is probably one of the more Let's put it this way: evocative R&B records, of course, that he did with the Raylettes, and sure. you go, you could play this on the radio. You know, um, that that one's pretty, uh, pretty wild. But yeah, the other ones, uh, uh, like uh, "Devil with Red Dress On" and "Wooly Bully," they were recorded and released for uh, for teenage white record buyers uh, in the '60s. I always thought, actually, when I when I heard "White Boy Troubles," I always thought that maybe you know, in that first section, that he was sort of doing a parody there. Because, you know, I'm I'm aware that, you know, he considered a lot of, say, like, for example, 60s white blues bands to be uh, inauthentic, to put it very mildly. Yeah. He actually used, at least at least once in an interview that I know he used Canned Heat as an example. Yep. Um, but, you know, that could be because Henry Vestine left the Mothers of Invention to go play with Canned Heat. So, yeah. <laughs> could yeah. be some resentment yeah. there. Do I- Trouble, 
Looks like you done pretty good here, Harry as a boy. I see you growing up like a weed, accidentally reproducing yourself and everything. Done found some low-rent housing in a one-dimensional cardboard nativity box on some Italian's fun loan. Bunch of crabgrass underneath the offspring for quick and easy sanitation. Shit! Y'all probably be saving up for your first lava lamp pretty soon. We're incredibly happy! Even though I'm gay, for business purposes, my relationship with artificial Rhonda has blossomed into something really beautiful. Although I must confess to being baffled by how she got knocked up. Well, if the truth be told, it was the father of the boy at the gas station when you sent the old lady in for the inner two patch and Rhonda for the July. Quentin? How could he be so unfaithful? I'm sure God has ways of punishing naughty little guys like that. Might as well stop complaining, boy. The damage been done. Least ways y'all can pretend to be some kind of daddy. Your rubber bitch ain't going to change no diapers. You said y'all was incredibly happy. Enjoy it while you got it, boy. The shit going to hit the fan in a minute. What? Something bad is going to happen? You figure it out. Judging from the intellectual expression on your beloved's ignorant face, the bitch can be contemplating a career of her own. See that? Look like she got a one good eye on a briefcase and tweed sport coat down the mall somewhere. During the intermission, few of the sisters seen attending a consciousness-raising meeting over to Hilton. That's right. Bitch passed up the mashed potatoes and took off with the high school cafeteria butch. Making matters worse, the Italian that be owning your nativity bungalow been wondering about the hanky and the panky between you and them two concrete flamingos over by the steps. You been messing with the state bird in New Jersey, motherfucker. That can get you fired to life in this vicinity. If you wants a little friendly advice, boy, I'd be growing my ass up a little quicker and whiz on out of here. Leave the ugly baby in the crabgrass. Snatch up your wretched excuse for a woman and climb on up the heap. Get yourself a job driving a truck full of screen beans to Utah. Make something out yourself so you can afford a ticket to the Mammy Nun Show. Then we can piss all over the adulterated wimp you gwine become and get the shit rolling again. Okay, now we're uh, down to two last examples, and these are both guitar solos. One is, you could call it like a mashup or uh, kind of a, kind of a collision just a combination and this it's what he does on the his second set of guitar solos called guitar and it's a track that he called it's not necessarily the st james infirmary Uh which combines um now according to the information is not knowledge website uh which is required uh accessing for all zappa fans uh the solo was recorded during a performance of a pound for a brown from uh, a 1982 concert in Italy, in Pistoia, Italy. Uh-huh. Uh, what you got, though, he starts with, it ain't necessarily so, from George Gershwin's opera, Porgy and Bess. 
and then but he's playing on top of an eight measure blues progression that you would associate with the St. James Infirmary. And in fact, a bit later on, you hear some uh, references, melodic references uh, to St. James Infirmary as well. So you got that kind of uh, mashup of two different uh, of two different songs associated with the blues.
This one is a toughie, and this may be one where the advanced uh, collectors of Zappa uh, will probably want to check that for themselves. And this is probably as abstract and um, as abstract as blues that Frank will have played, if indeed he was conscious of playing it. And this this was originally appeared as the guitar solo on the track Toto Line on Joe's Garage Act 1. Uh-huh. Supposedly, the solo came from Inca Rhodes, although that recording, there's an alternate edit of the solo that was released as Occam's Razor on the CD. It may be a one-shot deal. Yes. But uh, but if one was to listen to, at least play the uh, version uh, um, of titled Toto Line on Joe's Garage Act 1, and I would say, yeah, do this on your CD or YouTube access. Uh, I wouldn't try doing this with your LP copy, because you want to take a look, pay careful attention, not only to what Frank is playing, but then also to the duration uh, points. You could, if you listen to the first minute and a half of that solo, you could think of, yeah, you could think of the duration from the start at zero to 29 seconds as one 12 measure chorus, blues chorus, then from uh, point uh, 30 seconds uh, to a minute and 10 seconds as a second chorus with a coda to a a minute 33. And then you could also say there might be a third blues chorus that could be discerned in a free manner from a minute 33 to two minutes, 19 seconds. So this is pretty abstract. This is out there. And whether Frank is consciously playing a blues chorus on a non-blues vamp or it just simply came out that way because he's playing so freely, it's hard to say. It's one of those things that I can't say for sure whether Frank is playing a blues intentionally or not. So this for me is probably one of the most extreme, abstract, far out blues examples that can arguably be made for Frank uh, in his blues legacy. Yeah, I think the sort of feel of the guitar solo is sort of rooted in the blues, but I never, I never really thought of it as a blues itself. But it, but you do make for a, a very interesting and valid argument because now I have to go back and listen to it with, uh, yep. with, with that pair of ears on and <laughs> see. <laughs> oh yeah, it's wild when you think about all of the different variations that Frank could apply to this, uh, you know, his approach to this form of music. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, um, I think the fact that he was able to come up with so many of of these uh, variants, often employing them in very original ways as part of his compositional brilliance, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was certainly not limited to the blues in that sense you know he he employed a a lot of different musical forms and uh, influences well and, stuff and i like think that. that's a point about this uh podcast is what he did for the blues uh his treatments variants and all that and then his steps away from it similar a parallel instances can be found with any other identi- you know identifiable american song forms and uh as one kind of you know explores another uh aspect of his music making through various songs in his legacy, you can find, you know, examples where, you know, say a 32 measure song uh, where, yeah, he's following it very closely, but then uh, there's a possibility that, you know, he will change it, alter it in various ways. And that even some semblance of its form um, 
however free the improvising may be, some semblance of its form may become apparent during a guitar solo. Um, so you, you got so what's true for what we've been talking about the blues may also be true for other uh, you know non-blues song forms in American popular music. Yeah, and you know that's that's what makes for a genius. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it really does.
And that's our show. But before we go, here's the list of the musical selections you heard in this episode of the ZappaCast, folks. We heard Here Lies Love from the You Can't Do That On Stage Anymore Volume 5 album. Lost in a Whirlpool from the Lost Episodes album. Ronnie Sings, also from the Lost Episodes. Steal Away from the Mystery Disc. Your Mouth from Waka Jawaka. WPLJ from Burnt Weenie Sandwich. No No Cherry, a live version from the You Can't Do That On Stage Anymore Volume 4 album. Cocksucker's Ball from the Does Humor Belong In Music album. Stranded in the Jungle from Philly 76. The single edit of Magic Fingers from 200 Motels. Penguin in Bondage from Roxy the Movie The Soundtrack CD. 200 Years Old and Deborah Cadabra from the Bongo Fury album. The White Boy Troubles from Thing Fish. It Ain't Necessarily the St. James Infirmary from the Guitar Album. And Toto Line or On the Bus, It's Known Under Both Titles from the Joe's Garage Act 1 album. And we're going to close out our show with one final little blues nugget for you. The Man from Utopia Meets Mary Lou from the Man from Utopia album. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to order your copy of the Roxy Performances box set today. I'm Scott Parker. Thank you so much for listening to the ZappaCast, the official Frank Zappa podcast. Well, this is the story of a man who lived in Utopia. This is the story of a man who lived in Utopia. He was a funny little fella with feet just like I showed ya. Well, he had a girl, her name was Mary Lou. Well, he had a girl, her name was Mary Lou. She did everything for him that she could do. But still, 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 he wouldn't treat her right.
And that's our show. The ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Production assistance by Joe Travers and Melanie Starks. This podcast and all of the musical selections contained therein are copyrighted worldwide by the Zappa Family Trust. All rights reserved. Big thanks to Ahmed Zappa and all at Zappa.com. On behalf of the ZappaCast team, this is Scott Parker saying thank you for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls. It's been lovely working for you this evening. Good night. Good night.